Welcome back to the Heathen History Podcast. My name is Lauren. And I'm Ben. And this is part two of a his- brief history of Wicca Abridged. Right. Which is longer than I thought it was going to be when I started. Right. And it may not seem immediately obvious that this is really part of our bailiwick uh, doing heathen history, but Wicca has been immensely influential on Asatru as it developed a great deal of the ritual structure inherited from people like Steve McNallan, uh was ultimately borrowed from Wicca. Uh, the number of influential people in uh, heathenry, uh, like Prudence Priest, for example, who you've heard mentioned on a couple of previous episodes, um, come from a Wiccan background. And, you know, certainly there's been a lot more influence than, you know, than perhaps everybody is entirely comfortable with. And it's really touched almost every single pagan tradition that you can think of. Right. Either adopting from Wicca or uh, reacting to it, uh, sometimes negatively reacting. But, you know, certainly modern paganism would not exist or look extremely different if Wicca had never been. And if you haven't listened to part one, go, I'm going to pause here, go listen to it, come back. Right. Because a a lot of this is not going to make sense unless you've listened to part one. Right. Um, So we were about halfway through Gerald Gardner's life when we left off. Right. Uh, For those of you who just turned in, uh, Gerald Gardner um, had basically lived over, uh, traveled over a good chunk of the British Empire uh, it was more or less self-taught. He never got much of an education, but he'd become uh, a student and something of an expert on uh, folklore and religion of uh, Malaysia, earlier than that, of uh, Ceylon, uh, where he'd been uh, managing a rubber plantation. Uh, he studied Buddhism. Right. And he also was very involved with spiritualism and seances, and he also was a part of two temple excavations in Palestine with a man named Petrie, who you will find out is very influential on another person that's who wrote a book that's also influential on Wicca, Margaret Murray. Right. So Gardner has had the opportunity to learn a great deal about uh, folklore, folk belief, and magic in exotic places. Um, and he's also learning about folklore and folk magic in not-so-exotic places, mm-hmm. namely uh, Britain. And we'll raise the curtain. In um, 1938, uh, he's come back to Britain after a long time of uh, kicking around in Malaysia and uh, joined the Rosicrucian Order. Uh, which is a prominent uh, magical tradition within Western esotericism, and uh, met a number of Rosicrucians, uh, one of them, Edward Edith, sorry. Let me do that again. Yeah, he met Edith uh, Woodford Grimes, who is also known as Daffo. Mm-hmm. Um, and Daffo may be a name you'd be more familiar with than her actual name, because she did some writing and practice under that name. Right. That was her cousin name. Right. Uh, also, Susie Mason, her brother Ernie, and their sister, Rosetta Fudge. Right. 
Um, and then he quit two years later, which mm-hmm. kind of comes, it's not unsimilar to his time in the Masons, right. where he quit. And then in 1939, he joined the Folklore Society. Who do we know that was really involved with the Folklore Society, Ben? Well, I think by this time, Margaret Murray might have been president of the Folklore Society. Well, there we go. Um, So he published an article in 1939 um, describing a box of witchcraft relics he believed to have belonged to the 17th century Witchfinder General. Matthew Hopkins. Witchfinder General sounds like some sort of like really bad mobile game. Mm Mm-hmm. The Witchfinder General. Right. You had to make lots of macro purchases to find witches. Um, he claimed to have a doctorate of philosophy from the University of Singapore and a doctorate in literature from the University of uh, Toulouse. Too, mm-hmm. Toulouse. Toulouse. Now, now what's the problem with that, Ben? His claim was too loose. Exactly. <laughs> right. Singapore, University of Singapore did not exist at the time. Uh, University of Toulouse did exist, but had no record of him receiving a doctorate. Or a bachelor's, or a master's, or any or ever attending. Mm-hmm. That's because he never went to school. Right. Um, and he was highly criticized when this came out as having fake credentials. Um, people didn't believe that he had two uh, doctorates at the time, people in the folklore society. Um, so also around this time is when Gardner... Now, this we're going to talk about New Forest Coven. Um, New Forest, a lot of this here, we're going by Gardner's accounts. Uh, we really have no, we really have nothing other than his accounts on these. There's no proof that this did or did not happen. Uh, so this next part here, I want to just preface that caveat that this is his account and may or may not be true. Um, and so we'll go back to that list of people he met, um, Daffo and Susie Mason and her brother Ernie. And they took him in September 1939 to, a, to someone's house. He claimed that it was old Dorothy Clutterbuck's house. But Ben, why is that probably not true? Okay, Dorothy Clutterbuck uh, was in fact a real person. She died in 1951 and uh, she lived in the south of England. Okay, starting over. Uh, Dorothy Clutterbuck was, in fact, a real person. Uh, She died in 1951, and she lived in uh, Christchurch, which is a town right next to the larger town of Bournemouth uh, in the south of England, uh, right there on the coast. Um, And Bournemouth happens to be right next to the New Forest, uh, which is actually a very old forest. is that and like one of those ironic nicknames, like how people call my dad, who's seven foot tall, tiny? No, I think it's just that, you know, Britain has been a going concern for a lot longer than the United States has. So it's probably the new forest because it was established uh, by order of William the Conqueror uh, soon after 1066. Gotcha. I assume the old forest would have been, I don't know, established by, I don't know, Hengist and Horsa or something like that in 450 something. You know, that's old. The new forest, you know, is only a thousand years old. You know, no big deal. Yeah. Uh, But anyway, it was a royal forest, a place where the king could could hunt. It's not all forest, by the way. Some of it is um, heathland and meadow and things like that. 
some of it was cut down because it was a source of timber for the Royal Navy because it has and used to have more of uh, big oak trees and things like that, very good naval timber. Um, it's still, if not exactly untouched by humanity, it's still one of the largest remaining tracts of something close to wilderness in Britain. Would you say it was huge tracts of land? Ah, okay. There we have the obligatory <laughs> Monty Python reference. See, uh, I... Huge tracts of land? See. Right. And Dorothy Clutterbuck lived on the edge of it in uh, the town of Christchurch next to Bournemouth. The public record is that she was an Anglican Christian, and devoutly so, and politically pretty conservative. She was a donor to the conservative party. Uh, she's pretty much the last person anybody would suspect of being the leader of an ancient pre-Christian witchcraft tradition that had survived for thousands of years, uh, which means that either she was extremely good at covering her tracks or Gardner was having a bit of a joke. This would be, I don't know, this would be the equivalent of finding out that... What's that? It's talking to your mic. Okay. Um, time, give me a sec. All right. Um, this would be the equivalent of finding out that Barbara Bush is uh, actually the leader of a Wiccan coven. It's just not the sort of thing you would you would expect at all. Now, I want to counter that mm -hmm. because Gardner himself was very conservative. For all of this, that, and the other, he was a donor to the conservative party, member of the conservative party, voted conservative. He was considered politically very conservative. Mm -hmm. So as were most of the members of early Wicca. Right. If you define conservative literally as conserving things, then early Wicca, it's not so surprising that it was conservative because it's going back to an earlier order of, of things, going back to the past for its inspiration, uh, trying to conserve something that has been around for a very long time. Uh, Wicca in this country tends to be associated with political liberalism, uh, but it wasn't that way in you know, in the early, early years. So he's taken somewhere mm -hmm. uh, near the new forest and is made to strip naked. This will be a theme mm -hmm. and taken through an initiation ceremony. And um, during this ceremony, he claimed he hear, heard the word uh, Wicca, W-I-C-A, and he recognized it as the old English word for witch. I think it would probably have been pronounced Wicha in Wicha. Old English, but so be it. He hears yeah. Wicca and says, I then knew that which I had thought burnt out hundreds of years ago still survived. Uh, yes. And so he claimed that he had been initiated into uh, one of the very few surviving covens of the old pre-Christian religion of the British Isles. Uh, in fact, uh, research by Ronald Hutton um, st is that it probably was formed in the 1930s. Right. Probably. Right. Um, Dorothy Clutterbuck's uh, diaries have actually survived, and Hutton, upon reading them, concluded that Dorothy Clutterbuck was not actually pagan at all, that her tastes were quite conventional and uh, perfectly Christian. 
um, she did copy down poems and things like that from things that she had read, and some of them contain invocations to spring and the May. But that was pretty common, I would say, in Victor. You saw that in Victorian poetry. Yeah, it, it's it's hard to know whether it reflected any personal devotion on Dorothy Clutterbuck's part, or whether it was just a literary uh, convention of the of the time. So here's what I actually proposed in my paper that I wrote um, was that it's entirely possible. Um, Dorothy Clutterbuck did have some connections to folk- folklore society. Mm-hmm. And my theory is it's entirely possible it could have taken place at her house. She just wasn't there. Right. Someone asked, hey, can we stay at your house this weekend? You know, go. And that was not uncommon among the upper classes to or middle classes to have, you know, to go to, to the country. Someone mm-hmm. who lived in London or something to go to the country. So my theory is that if it happened at her house, it happened without her knowledge. Right. It was one of those things where she knew the Masons or Dafo or someone that was involved and they allowed her to, and she allowed them to use her house for the weekend while she was, you know, I don't know, in Nice right. for the winter or whatever, mm-hmm. summer. She may have been up in Scotland for the summer. Maybe she's visiting Balmoral and the Queen, mm. which would have been, I think, Queen... Um, no, it wouldn't have been Mary. Mary would have died by this point, so it would have yeah, been... 1939, it would have been uh, George V. Right. Um, so, you know, that that's my theory that if it was there, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. So... Right. We may never know. Yeah. Skeptics will probably always claim that Gardner simply made the whole thing up, and his inclusion of Dorothy Clutterbuck was basically his idea of a joke... There's, you know, Dorothy Clutterbuck herself is not available for comment because she died in 1951. Uh, so exactly what happened may ultimately depend on what you believe happened. Um, and But I will say that when it comes to a lot of, you know, a lot of the fraternities and sororities were established, you know, within the 50 years prior. Mm-hmm. And it was not stripping someone naked or something like that was not terribly uncommon in a fraternal, especially a fraternal um, initiation. Mm-hmm. So it's entirely possible that this group of people who built this coven like five years before decided taking from these rituals, which claimed to be from ancient Greece uh, to do, or, you know, one of them had been involved in some other organization that, did nudity. It's entirely possible that they also kind of came up with this. It's also the fact that Gardner was a devout nudist. Mm-hmm. So really, there's so many places that the nakedness could come from. Right. Um, and even now to this day, if you are initiated into a lineage Gardnerian coven, mm-hmm. um, in most of them, you absolutely are stripped down naked. How do I know this? Uh, do you really want to tell us how you know this? I was initiated into a Gardnerian coven. I was um. offered... You could either be naked or you could wear a, like a, a white, pure white, like chemise. So Uh, I opted for the pure white chemise because I do not want to inflict myself naked on anyone. So, um, well, but you're married, aren't you? Well, my husband's excluded. Um, he chose that. Okay. He chose that. All right. Um, but yeah, he, so, but that is something that you'll see in pretty much every Gardnerian lineage group that's one mm-hmm. of the like the tells and we'll get to that in a little bit 
So around this time, he also meets Ross Nichols. Now, who's Ross Nichols, Ben? Well, Ross Nichols would go on in the 60s to found a group called the Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids. Uh, Druidry had been going on ever since the 1700s in Britain uh, by this, uh, uh, led by this Welsh um, nationalist, I guess is the word, uh, who called himself uh, Yolo Morganug. Yolo. Yeah, something like that. No, I O L O. It's it's funnier than not Y O L O. I only live once. Okay. I li- oh, there we go. <laughs> yeah. Except I don't think the Druids do only live once because they believed in reincarnation. But anyway, be that as it may, uh, there had been a number of Druidic groups in Britain since the 1700s that claimed uh, to be restoring the ancient uh, Druidism. Uh, there's actually a very funny picture of a young Winston Churchill uh, being initiated into a Druid group um, surrounded by a bunch of uh, men wearing white robes and fake beards. It's uh, <laughs> really quite ridiculous. And, and a lot of these Druid groups, though, were more like fraternal orders. Yeah, you have some that were more into um, you know, mutual aid you know, fraternal orders, they'd be the equivalent of the Elks Club or the... Um, Woodmen of America? Woodmen of America or the Loyal Order of Water Buffalo. No, wait, that's the Flintstones, but you get the idea. So, yeah, so some of the Druidic groups didn't take the spiritual aspect particularly uh, seriously, but some did. Hey, Ben. Yes? Do you know who also was initiated as a Druid? Who was initiated as a Druid? Cheryl Gardner. Ah. 1946, he was initiated into the ancient Druid order. All right. And uh, attended uh, several of their midsummer rituals at Stonehenge. Oh, no one knows who they were or what they were doing, but their legacy remains hewn out of the living rock of Stonehenge. Sorry, that's a Spinal Tap reference. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. We, we name-checked Ozzy in the last one. We might as well do Spinal Tap with this one. And again, if we have any British listeners left, I apologize for the accent. I, See, I feel like Spinal Tap, you can do a bad accent. That's okay. Right, right. Oh, we'll worship like the Druids. Drinking strange fermented fluids. Dancing naked through the woods. Because that's good enough for me. Oh, so, yeah. yes. Um, so, here is, here is yet another person that was in Gardner's Circle with Ross Nichols, mm-hmm. who went on to found a another pretty major, at one point in time, pagan organization. Right. Um, so he purchases some land in 1945 um, in Four Acres, which is a nudist colony near Brickett Wood in Hertfordshire. Right. And in midsummer 1947, so he had bought this witch cottage right. from a museum mm-hmm. and had it disassembled and moved to... Brickett Wood. Right. Seems like, wasn't he trying at one point to make it kind of a local tourist attraction? He did. It It actually now is, his home is now actually, I think it's called the British Museum of Witchcraft. Um, I know some of it, they got sold off after he died to Ripley's Believe It or Not. Right. But yeah, it actually did establish a museum there eventually. That was kind of, it is a tourist trap. So he had this ceremony, the witch cottage was finally reassembled and he had this... Uh, he had bought this from a Christian spiritualist that had it in a museum. It was a tourist trap in London. Right. And so he has this ceremony. And from all accounts, it was pretty much like 
a right from the Key of Solomon. Right. Yeah, there's, well, there's a tradition of ceremonial magic Mm -hmm. that, again, that might be a little bit far out of our wheelhouse, but that goes back to at least the Renaissance. Yes. And certainly you had groups like the uh, Ordo Templi Orientis and things like that that were very much into magic, much of it in a Christian or quasi-Christian context, some of it influenced by Kabbalah. Uh, you had people like the poet William Butler Yeats, who in his earlier years was very much interested in ceremonial magic and wrote some um, some of his best early poetry actually comes out of that before he kind of got disillusioned with everything. So interestingly, about uh, two months before this happened, uh, it just so happened that Gardner had made a very interesting acquaintance. Mm-hmm. A one Mr. Alistair Crowley. Mr. Crowley, won't you ride my white horse? And we're back to Ozzy again. Okay, yeah. So, um, now, you want to tell us a little bit about Alistair Crowley, Ben? Okay, Crowley was um, born into a pretty well-off family. They had a big brewery, if memory serves, in mm-hmm. northern England. Um, Crowley did, among other things, uh, some pioneering mountaineering expeditions. Uh, he was a novelist who wrote novels like Diary of a Drug Fiend, which was based largely on experience, uh, and a poet who privately published a book of poetry called White Stains, which I really don't think I can recommend. Let, let's just not talk about that one. Yeah, let's just not yeah. even go there. Let's just go, not go there. Um, and very much interested in magic and ended up founding a magical order called Thelema or Thelema. I'm not sure what the right one is. Or Thelema. Or Thelema. Thelema is, Thelema is what I have always heard. Okay. Um, and Thelema is also another thing that's going to be highly influential in, the general kind of magical pagan. Uh, mm-hmm. You see a lot of influence in Thelema and things like Anton LaVey. Right. Um, so. Yeah, Crowley had been meditating on, and I can't remember if he was in Egypt at the time, but he'd been meditating on an, uh, a late Egyptian carving and basically gotten this revelation um of, uh, and now I can't think of the names, but uh, Nuit, the goddess, and Rahur Huit, uh, the crowned and conquering child. So there's some Egyptian symbolism mm-hmm. in there. I'm probably not explaining that very well, but I and don't know that much about we're gonna, we're gonna, Thelema. We're going to look at this a little further later because you this does tie back into heathenry mm-hmm. because you have influence of Thelema on Temple of Set, mm-hmm. who, if you have listened to our Troth episode, mm-hmm. uh, some of the original founders of the Troth were also involved at one point in time with Temple of Set. Right. So Thelema is still going strong. It is. I actually know a few people who are uh, actually OTO. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I want to, I keep in, inducted. My brain wanted to say indoctrinated. I knew that wasn't right. But. Right. There there used to be a group of them in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. I, I know there's one in Memphis now. There's one in Dallas. Okay. Uh, that's how the people I know that are in Dallas. Right. So um, he, um, he basically elevated Gardner to a fourth degree mm-hmm. in, in the OTO. 
and then decreed that Gardner could admit people into its uh, Minerval degree. Now, this is a little sketchy mm-hmm. because the charter that was written mm-hmm. that gave him permission was written by Gardner, and he just signed it. Right. So I'm not saying that he – it's just mm-hmm. still a little sketchy. That's all I'm going to say. Um, so right after all this, Gardner comes to America. Right. Um, he uh, visited some relatives in Memphis. Mm-hmm. And during that time, I – uh, and something that I actually found through reading through some of my research. So one of the things that I do personally is I study uh, traditional Ozark folk magic and folk medicine. That's one of my interests. And through my research into that, I actually found accounts of where he had come to the Ozarks. Mm. Uh, specifically, he went to Eureka Springs and he went to Springfield, Missouri. All right. And then he went to somewhere else, but he kind of stayed in that general area. Maybe you went to Branson. I don't know. Oh, Isn't that I, I what don't you think do Bra- in that area. Yeah, but I, I don't think Branson was really a well table, going concern at the time. Table, table Rock Lake was okay. The lake up there was, but mm-hmm. regardless, um, he went through because those were some of the places that were mentioned in the Foxfire books and mm-hmm. the Foxfire Journal, which, if you're not familiar, is a journal of Appalachian and Ozark folklore and folk practices. Right. Um, probably most the book a book had come out very. Around that time, I think maybe a little bit more, um, it's called Ozark Magic and Folk Belief now, but it had a different name at the time. Was that Vance Randolph? Yes, Vance Randolph. Mm-hmm. Um, and Vance Randolph had actually lived in the Ozarks for a long time to yeah. gain trust to be able to, to get this information. Yeah, he was probably the premier collector of Ozark folk beliefs, yes. folk tales, uh, published several volumes of clean Ozark folk tales, and then put all the dirty ones into a book called Pissing in the Snow, which I <laughs> highly recommend. It's a great book. And I don't know exactly where he described this, but there's various stories you could hear at the time in the Ozarks about a folk magic tradition that involved, and here this is a common theme, um, going out in the nude uh, to plant your crops. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's an account of a farmer and his wife uh, who sowed their flax field, you know, for making linen uh, by walking around the field stark naked uh, with the wife walking in front and the husband picking up, walking behind her, picking up handfuls of flax seed and throwing them so they bounced off his wife's butt before landing in the soil. And apparently they were chanting, up to my ass and higher too. And then when it was done, quote, they just laid down in the field and had a good time. They showed the plants what to do. Exactly. Uh, There's another story about the family that raised the biggest watermelon uh, ever grown in Stone County. And apparently the whole family pretty much nearly killed themselves trying to do it because the way that you raise a big watermelon is to go out in the field and have sex. And apparently they almost broke their backs and wore themselves out completely, but they raised a big melon. Some of this, of course, may be... Embellished to a great degree. One of Vance Randolph's collections of folklore, by the way, is called, quote, We Always Lie to Strangers. So yeah, to what extent this represents reality is hard to know. Um Although I suspect even though the locals might have joked about it, there was probably something to it. So I want to tie this back to heathenry. All right. Because that is what our podcast is about. Okay. Um, And then heathenry, you know, uh, uh, Ozark and Appalachian magic, uh, because my family immigrated 
into the Appalachians and the Ozarks on my uh, mom's side um, is definitely descendant of Anglo-Saxon mm-hmm. and Anglo-Saxon magic. A lot of the plants that you see used in Appalachian and Ozark folk practices are things that were brought from England. So there's actually a tie. And if you start really studying these things, you can find ties back into heathenry. Mm-hmm. So just a little side there. So he also traveled to New Orleans, mm-hmm. studied a little voodoo like you do. There are those who practice voodoo. Yes, there's those that practice voodoo. I know I do. I hope you do. And that's good enough for me. Okay. Yes. Um, There we have the obligatory songs. Yes. So um, during his trip, um, so he's he's traveling from November to March. So on the 1st of December, um, Alexander Crowley dies. And Gardner declares himself, he's now the head of the OTO in Europe. And... uh, a pattern going here right um about two years later mm-hmm. he is uh he is no longer the head of the oto in europe because he lost interest like i said there's a pattern i'm emerging mm-hmm. so he releases he had released a book back in 39 called high magic's aid or excuse me for, uh 49 i'm sorry um, High Magic Aid was this fictional book set in 12th century, in the 12th century, and it was his attempt to spread Wicca kind of subversively. Mm-hmm. Um, and it included a lot of ceremonial magic. It was very much about the mother goddess cult. And it, it was pretty much like he took his beliefs and wrapped a veneer of 12th century fantasy around them. Right. Um, so then he started uh, composing Ye Bach, Ye Art, Magical. All right. Magical. It's not Magical. There's no K. Okay. okay. Um, and if you get that joke, you too listen to the F+. Uh, shout out to one of my favorite podcasts. All right. And it was his private scrapbook that originally, eventually became his Book of Shadows. Um, so in 1952, he met someone who I think actually is responsible for more of modern Wicca as far as like actual rituals and rites and practices than he was. And that's Doreen Valente. Mm-hmm. Doreen Valente was this very brilliant writer and poet. Uh, she had started writing with him. They were, and so he invited her to come to his home, was uh, initiated on midsummer 1953 into his coven. And she's the one that basically took this giant scrapbook and turned it into the Gardnerian Book of Shadows. Uh, the thing that she has written that probably the most amount of people would know is The Charge of the Goddess, which is very much like it's something that's used in almost every British traditional witchcraft ritual. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, The Charge of the Goddess begins, Listen to the words of the Great Mother, who was of old also called Artemis, Astarte, Diana, Melusine, Aphrodite, Caridwen, Dana, Arianhrod, Isis, Brida, and by many other names. And, and that definitely put forth into that theology that Wicca has, that we'll touch on a little bit more in a minute, of all goddesses are one goddess, all gods are one god. Right. Which can put them into conflict with heathens because uh, they, you start 
talking about hard polytheism and they get very confused. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but she was, you know, she wrote a majority of the rituals. She right. wrote a majority of the Gardnerian Book of Shadows, which if you're interested in reading, it's mm-hmm. literally all over the internet for free. It's on archive.org. Right. And it's a, and she's certainly a gifted writer. Very. I mean, the charge of the goddess, whatever we might think of the theology, is very it's inspirational. Beautiful. You know, and ye shall be free from slavery, and as a sign that you are really free, ye shall be naked in your rights, and ye shall dance, sing, feast, make music and love, all in my praise. For mine is the ecstasy of the spirit, and mine also is joy on earth, for my law is love unto all beings. Yeah. Um, so... 1954 is when Gardner becomes a publicity hound. Mm. I could use another word, but I'll be nice. Um, and his book, Witchcraft Today, is published. It was republished later as The Truth About Witchcraft Today. Right. Um, but both titles are, in fact, the same book. And it's actually The Truth About Witchcraft Today. You can still pick up. At, you know, It was still being published five years ago. I remember seeing it at like Barnes & Noble. Right. Um, and it, it was prefaced by... Margaret Murray. Yes. Told you she'd come back. Here again. we go again. Um, it espoused the survival of the witch cult, a theory that in a belief that fairies in Europe were a secret pygmy race. Here we go again. <laughs> Here we go again. Um, the Knights Templar were initiates of the craft. And mm-hmm. he became actively courting publicity to keep the old religion from dying out. Wait, I thought the Knights Templar were the guardians of the sacred bloodline of Jesus. Yes. I mean, that's what they are in, uh, what are those god-awful novels? Um, oh, I don't What's know. his name? Oh, um, oh, you're thinking of... Um, da Vinci Code, that's yes, it. Yes, Da Vinci Code. Yeah, I thought the Templars were the guardians of Jesus' bloodline. That too, probably. Okay. They, they do all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, he starts courting, he really starts courting the press and gets these... these stories written about him that are both positive and negative, but they're all sensational. And he kind of made it worse because he had like this Van Dyke beard mm-hmm. and he would keep it very pointy and he had, he would kind of wear his hair. So it looked like he had horns. I mean, he, he was a troll. He mm-hmm. was an OG troll because he, he, but he got all this press and people, his book became a bestseller because it was controversial and, People wanted to know about it, and he mm-hmm. was on, you know, radio shows, and it was pretty crazy. That, uh, and he was a great fodder for, you know, things mm-hmm. like the Daily Mail, who still are kind of around. Right. Well, there was a interest in this in uh, popular culture uh, in uh, Britain at the time uh, because of the work of a novelist named Dennis Wheatley, um, not that well known now. Uh, But between the 30s and the 60s, he was a very prolific novelist who wrote a lot of um, thrillers, spy novels, and also occult novels. Uh, He'd written a a novel called The Devil Rides Out in 1934, uh, which was actually made into a film in uh, 1968, and The Devil Rides Out is all about a secret cult of devil worshippers. Uh, they're holding a grand sabbat on Salisbury Plain, which happens to be where Stonehenge is located. Um, and again, it was made into a movie in 1968 with uh, Count Dooku, I'm sorry, Christopher Lee 
as uh, as the the star, uh, somebody named uh, the Duke de Richelieu. So, so yeah. uh, with Wheat, with Wheatley's novels, there was a great deal of interest already in the possibility of these secretive cults of devil worshippers. Uh, Wheatley's novels, by the way, would be what would go on to inspire uh, groups like. Uh, you know, Black Sabbath and Iron Maiden, a lot of the, you know, number of the beast, oogity boogity stuff that finds its way into... Uh, Hell's Bells. Uh, I was thinking, um, you know... Okay, sorry, I was about to sing The Number of the Beast by Iron Maiden, but I just don't have the vocal cords uh, yeah. for that. I'm not Bruce Dickinson. No. But the whole 666, The Number of the Beast, 666, The One for You and Me... Uh, owes a lot to Dennis Wheatley's novels and then the Hammer films, movies made from them. Yes. Uh, but, yeah, that had certainly sowed an interest in, you know, secret witchcraft and devil cults. And here's Gardner coming on and saying, yes, it's all real, but don't worry, we're good, we're not evil. Yes. Uh, so, uh, you know, 668 is, right? The neighbor of the beast? Exactly. Oh, you know what you call a piece of wood that's six by six by six? What? The lumber of the beast. <laughs> so let's talk a minute about Gardnerian Wicca and what they actually believe and their structure. So it's an initiatory mystery cult. Mm-hmm. Um, you could only become a member through initiation by a high priest of a Gardnerian tradition mm-hmm. who was also initiated. Right. Um, so pretty and much... It's, it's cross-gender, yeah. right? If you're... A- Sometimes it's not that's not set in stone, mm-hmm. but it's it's supposed to. Ideally, it is. But if you don't have, it can be done male to female. And I think that the cross gender thing is an Ozark thing because when it comes to yarb doctors and other practices, magical practices in the Ozarks and the Appalachians, mm-hmm. it has to be cross gender. One of the reasons why uh, people who want to learn are generally women. And I've looked for a teacher for years, and there's just no men anymore mm. that are teaching it. So I can't actually learn it from a practitioner because there's no, it's all elderly women. Mm. Um, so um, organized into covens, groups of 13. Right. And if you are a gardenerian initiate, uh, ideally, and this is more of a modern thing, mm-hmm. um, you can go through and literally. Uh, you're supposed to be able to, when you get initiated, to go through and recite your entire initiatory lineage all the way back to mm-hmm. Gerald Gardner. And this, by the way, is something that would end up playing a role in heathenry uh, because uh, by the 1970s in Watertown, New York, uh, the closest town to Fort Drum up in northern upstate New York, um, there's a... Um, uh, there was a large coven in the Algard tradition, which yes. I think is a fusion of Gardnerian and a tradition that came a little later, the Alexandrian tradition of Wicca. Yes. And uh, there was a young guy in there who went by the name of Merlin Solomon at the time. And he got kind of disillusioned with it. Um, and on the 4th of July, 1976, um, he actually invoked uh, Woden and Frigga, and they showed up, and uh, Merlin Solomon would end up changing his uh, name uh, to Garmin Lord. 
And after a few false starts, he ended up founding Theodish uh, Belief. <sighs> and one of and they're open about this. We're not revealing any, you know, hidden secrets of. But they of don't like to talk theodism. about it. Well. <laughs> The, the ones I know don't like to talk about that. Well, they 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 will admit that Theodish belief was founded as a, a Wiccan apostasy, and one of the things that has been retained is lineage. You can only be high Theodish if you're part of a group that was chartered uh, by Garmin Lord as part of uh, the Windland Recha. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, anybody can be Theodish if you just read you know, Garmin Lord's book, The Way of the Heathen, and try to put it into practice. But the only high Theodish groups are the ones that can trace a lineage uh, back to Garmin Lord. So this lineage thing is something that would end up influencing the structure of um, not really a big numerical, numerically never a very big heathen group, uh, but certainly one that definitely punched above its weight for a very long time in terms of the writing and the theology and the, the right. thinking and the practice that they developed. So the two principal deities were the horn god and the mother goddess. Um, the uh, mother goddess was known as? Um, Aradia. Yes. Which again comes from uh, Charles Leland's uh, yes. Gospel of the Witches, where Aradia was, you know, the daughter of Diana, the, the great witch goddess. And then the god was uh, Cernunos, or Cernuno, right. or Janicot? Janico, I Jean-Nico. think, if it's French. Yes. And Cernunos, be it said, is known from a carving uh, dating from Roman times. Uh, he seems to have been a god who did have horns, Cernunos uh, apparently really does mean the horned one in Gaulish. Um, now, Celtic or Gaulish religion never really did have a single well-organized pantheon. It was a very localized mm-hmm. cult um, with gods and goddesses associated with particular springs or rivers or other places like that. Um, but he is, in fact, a god who was worshipped in ancient Western Europe and who did, in fact, have horns. So, but there was this belief that pretty much all gods are one god, all goddesses mm-hmm. are one goddess. And you get that coming from the Golden Bough that we yes. talked about in the previous one um, that traces patterns of things like virgin births and... Uh, dying and resurrected gods of vegetation and fertility uh, being common to an enormously wide range of religions, including Christianity, by Mm -hmm. the way. Um, Yeah, Fraser got in a certain amount of trouble uh, for suggesting that Christianity actually follows the same basic pattern as all of these religions with dying and living gods. So, as we said earlier, they were naked in their rights. Or sky-clad, which yes. they actually borrowed from India. Yes. Uh, one of the sects of the Jain religions, uh, you're not supposed to wear any clothing at all. And I think that's digambara. Uh, it's their word for religiously nude is, you know, sky-clad. So, one of the primary practices of specifically British traditional Wicca, Gardnerian Wicca, and its lineage groups, is the Great Rite. Right. Uh, now, this can be a literal coupling right. of a man and a woman, or it can be a symbolic coupling using a chalice, or basically like a mm-hmm. big fancy wine glass, Right. Um, that 
is represents the womb, mm-hmm. and the athame or the athame is as mm-hmm. rednecks call it, right? As the phallus, right? And they take the athame and they plunge it into the chalice mm-hmm. as a ritual, basically fertility. Fertility rite, we'll call it right. That. Hey, you know why heathens don't do the great rite? Why? You can't fit the sword in the beer bottle. <laughs> yeah. So mm-hmm, right. Um, anyway, as far as the ethics that were put forward, you had the Wiccan read, right? Um, if it harm none, do what you will. And there's a much longer version, but I don't really want to go into it. Um, they also had the law of return or the rule of three. Yeah, what you send out comes back to you threefold. And actually, originally, mm-hmm. it was just the law of return. It was based on Newton's third law of motion. Ah. What you put out comes back. Mm-hmm. Um, the rule of three was put in by Dorian Valente, I believe. All right. Um, they had the wheel of the year, which is the uh, eight sabbats, which is pretty traditional. In pa- I mean, most pagan groups... Mm-hmm. Outside of, I would say, uh, reconstructions conditions do some sort of wheel of the year. The equinoxes, the solstices, and the four cross quarters. Mm-hmm. Um, so, a few initiates of note: you have Alexander and Maxine Sanders, who were the founders of Alexandrian Wicca, um, and they uh, inducted Janet and Stuart Farrar and Vivian Crowley. You have Raymond Buckland, who was one of the first kind of big authors on Wicca. And who developed a tradition of his own called Sax Wicca. Yes. Uh, which has a Saxon background where the god and goddess, I think, are Woden and Freya. Mm-hmm. Um, you have um, Mary Nesnick, who created the Algard tradition we were talking about earlier. Right. You have uh, Sybil Leake, who is a well-known pagan author. And then as far as the traditions... Uh, so all of the traditions that are lineage from Gardnerian are considered British traditional Wicca right. or British traditional witchcraft. So just a few of some of the derived traditions, um, Alexandrian Wicca, Aquarian Tabernacle Church. Uh, I know for a fact they're all uh, Gardnerian lineage, the leadership is at least. Mm-hmm. Um, Blue Star Wicca, Odessian Wicca, Central Valley Wicca. Majestic Order in the Silver Crescent and the New Wiccan Church, Mm -hmm. which is an association of the groups that are active in Britain. Mm -hmm. That's kind of their, like, their 501c, whatever you call it, a nonprofit organization in Britain. Okay. That's their kind of mother nonprofit. You know, I don't know if my mother is Wicca, uh, but her chairs are. No, they're Wicker. Oh, 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 okay. Um, And then Gardner, they had the Gardnerian Book of Shadows. We've kind of mentioned it a little earlier, but I, I do kind of want to talk about the content a little bit. Um, so it, Dorian Valente actually kind of put it together. It came from Gardner's scrapbook. Uh, this included materials from, um, our idea, gospel of the witches, the writings of Aleister Crowley, Masonic rituals and Rudyard Kipling, Mm -hmm. uh, because why not? Um, and yeah, well, Kipling had, Kipling was a very engaging poet Mm -hmm. and he'd written this book called Puck of Pook's Hill. Uh, which kind of takes you through British history. And he'd written things like, um, uh, what is it, a poem that's put in the mouths of Roman soldiers manning Hadrian's Wall, uh, an invocation to Mithras. Mithras, also a soldier, give us the courage to die, that sort of thing. Yes. So sections of this thing were written in this mock Old English, mm-hmm. um, including advice for witches who are being brought to trial and tortured. And Gardner claimed that these were totally historic. Really, mm-hmm. really, they're historic. And 
have been passed down orally, either passed down orally or passed down in like a a cryptographic jumbled manner so that if mm-hmm. a you know non-initiate were to ever read it mm-hmm. that they wouldn't understand it i seem to recall gardner said that the the book of shadows of the new forest coven yes and again there's some debate among scholars as to whether that really existed or not but the rituals were so fragmentary after all these years of being passed down in secret uh, that to get them to make sense he had to pad them out yes uh, with writings from Crowley and people like that. Go ahead. Um, one of the things that uh, Gardner or his associates put in there uh, is a chart, a, a chant uh, called Echo Echo Azarak. And I'm sorry, coming from Louisiana, I don't want to say Echo Echo. I always want to say Iko Iko. Iko Echo Azarak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, now, my thumb and your thumb sitting by the fire. And anyway, I'm not really sure we know where the Echo Echo Azarak comes from, but there's a section of it that goes Baza bi la chaba chabe lama kahi achababe karelios, and so on. And that turns out to be borrowed from a 13th century French miracle play called Le Miracle de Théophile. And uh, there's a character in there who is evidently supposed to be Saladin, uh, the Muslim commander who uh, fought against the Crusaders. Um, In medieval Christianity, they usually didn't bother to recognize the difference between Islam and paganism and believe that the Muslims were worshiping idols of Muhammad and things like that, Uh, which of course doesn't make any sense theologically, but you know, to the Christians, it was all the same. And Saladin uses words like that to uh, invoke the devil. Goes around saying "bagahi la chaba chabe" and so on. And Gardner appears to have picked up the words somewhere and incorporated them into the, the Book of Shadows as part of the Echo Echo Azarak chant. So one of the things that was really interesting, I thought, is the reason that a the Gardnerian Book of Shadows was created, and b mm-hmm. he put out his Witchcraft Today book was. Until 1951, it was illegal to be a witch in Britain. Mm-hmm. So 51, that is officially repealed. Mm-hmm. Now all of a sudden, it's you know not dangerous to write things down in and actually have these Book of Shadows. Mm-hmm. Um, to um, even though mm-hmm. um, in general these things were not supposed to be shared to non-initiated members, uh, it would there were. I heard stories and superstitions of it would make them crazy or, you know, they couldn't mm-hmm. handle it, which reminds me of Scientology. Right. Actually, there's a lot about Gardner that reminds me of Ron Hubbard, but, um, so. It's, well, I, th- I think the difference is that, you know, in Wicca, okay, you might have to get naked, but you don't have to pay, you know, thousands of dollars for psychological testing, or at least not in any tradition I've ever heard of. No, but, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's, I think that it's it's definitely, you know, and so this Gardnerian Book of Shadows, at least if you're interested, this thing's up all over the internet, but I know you can get it at archive.org. You I can th- even see a scan mm-hmm. of one of the original handwritten versions on archive.org. I think, I think some publisher put out the complete version mm-hmm. in the 1970s, I think. Yeah, this and is- it's... The, like, the cat's long out of the bag. This is no yeah, longer this a is secret. Not, yeah, and so it... it I know that a copy of it was sold after Gardner died because mm-hmm. Ripley's believe it or not had it for a while. Right. So that to me, you know, that's a, 
that's kind of, you know, that's, this is their general, like, guidebook, their religious book. And the idea was you have this book of shadows, and then once you're initiated, you add to it. Right. And this is a very, like, this is super common now among most general neo-pagans mm-hmm. to have this kind of journal. And even I, although I don't call it a book of shadows, you know, every time that we have rituals and I do them and I write them, I, you know, I have a little, you know, three ring binder and I keep them in there and I write notes about how it went. And that was, it's less about keeping some sort of magical record and help it more helping me improve my own writing skills. Right. Yeah. But this is definitely a, this is definitely something that's very, very prominent in modern Mm neo-paganism. The idea of this book of shadows and kind of this journal slash procedural manual on Mm -hmm. how to be pagan. Right. Um, Which is not a bad idea. You know, I'll be honest with you. I, you and I have had this conversation before. The Wheel of the Year is not bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're getting together, what, roughly every six weeks? Right. And just having, you know, eight regular checkups a year yeah. on, you know, touching base, seeing how you're doing, maybe reflecting on how you've grown or something like that. And, and they, they're all, you know, all of the dates in the Wheel of the Year are dates that were actually celebrated mm-hmm. at one time. Um, you know, certainly Yule, Midsummer, um, May Day, are certainly celebrated. May Day, um, August the second was uh, Lamas. That's from the Anglo-Saxon uh, Hlafmas. Loaf uh, feast. Loaf. Well, originally loaf yeah. mass because mm-hmm. you took the first fruits of your harvest to church. Um, you have. Um you also have um, candle moss, mm-hmm. which is another in February. Right. Um, it is just a little mishmash of different cultures, though. Right. You have some that are Anglo-Saxon, some that are, you know, possibly Celtic in origin. Candle moss, I think, is also, uh, what, Imelk? Yes, Imbolc. Right, which is Irish, I believe, for um, lactation of the ewes. It's when mm-hmm. your sheep start giving milk. So there, it's definitely a, mm-hmm. a, a bit of a strange mishmash, but mm-hmm. I mean, there's something to it because it works and people keep doing it. So mm-hmm. I, there is something to it. I, I do think that he had some decent ideas. So he published a few other books, uh, The Meaning of Witchcraft, uh, an autobiography, Gerald Gardner, Witch, mm-hmm. and A Goddess Arrives, which was an, a fictional book that was a sequel to his previous book. High Magic's Aid? Yes. Um, and then, so in 1964, February 12th, he had been um, in Majorica visiting friends. Mm-hmm. His health was not great. His wife had passed away a few years earlier, and his asthma had come back. And um, he had a fatal heart attack aboard the Scottish Prince. Mm-hmm. And then ship's next port of call was Tanzania. You mean Tunisia? Tunisia, yes. Mm-hmm. Tunisia. I can't. Don't. Um, and so he was buried there. Um in the about 10 years ago a group of wiccans actually went over there to try to find his grave the area had been developed Mm. so they actually raised the funds and had him buried in a cemetery in tunis oh okay and then there's a plaque that was put up um, as well dedicated to his life there um so apparently it's like texas over there you can put a plaque up for anything okay so he certainly got around yes so you know, that, that's Daryl Gardner, and love, hate, ha, whatever your opinion is on Wicca, 
the fact of the matter is it it's been a huge influence on uh every branch of paganism really mm-hmm. um when you think to heathen practices um the hammer right right is a huge i mean hammer right is very much a reskinning of the wiccan calling of the quarters right which itself derives from a ceremonial practice called the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram yes all right so then you have there's you know i mean a lot of also true especially still celebrate essentially a wheel of the year calendar Mm -hmm. um and i want to put this out here in defense of these people as much as it kind of pains me sometimes to defend them once again at this point in time late 70s this was all still considered absolutely factual Mm -hmm. um I have a friend who who has a degree in European history, a bachelor's and a master's. And in 1998, he was in getting his bachelor's, and they were teaching the witch cult of Western Europe as a fact. So, mm-hmm. um, I can't fault the people from the 70s, 80s, 90s who didn't have the kind of resources we have for mm-hmm. doing what they did because it worked. Right. When McNallan is... We've talked about him earlier, but when he got back from his military service in Germany and started putting together the uh, what was soon renamed the Ausatru Free Assembly and actually started getting together with people and holding rituals and having to develop a ritual structure for the first time, he turned to Wicca because it was what was out there. Uh, he was probably saw no particular reason to doubt it and made the acquaintance of uh, Wiccans like uh, Prudence Priest. And I think that's where a lot of this uh, ultimately comes from. Well, and Llewellyn was a major publisher starting Mm -hmm. in the 60s. And uh, Llewellyn is, you know, they've published just about everything. Um, And they, if it's New Agey, you know, they published Buckland's books. They Mm -hmm. published Crowley's books. They published... um, Scott Cunningham, you know, pretty much all of the major pop pagan authors were pub- have been published by Llewellyn. Mm-hmm. And as a result, because of this, that's what was available. If I went to, you know, what was, was it, was that Walden books, mm-hmm. they would have half a shelf of new age books and they'd all be Llewellyn or that Sylvia mm-hmm. Brown woman. Right. Um, and so that, that's what was there. And people, I think people were a little more trusting. Mm-hmm. And if the Encyclopedia Britannica says that this is true, these books say it's true, well, they wouldn't print something if it wasn't true. Mm-hmm. So I get it. I also understand that there are still groups who do the hammer right because they've been doing it since the 80s and they're not going to change, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that knowing about this helps us also examine who we are now as heathens, as also true, as whatever. And helps us figure out what is true and what is not. Right. Well, I think that's the point of the whole podcast that yeah. we're doing is trying to look at the, the roots of where we come from, why we do these things, whether we should do these things or not is not a question I think we can dictate to people. But certainly you need to, you know, look into your past and, you know, as the heavy metal group tears. I'll just recite it. I won't. I won't sing it because I don't think I can. But um, you have to look down and find your fate. Excavate, and 
Well, and yeah, as, that's what we're doing. Excavating. To, to quote a co- one of the co-hosts of my old podcast, if you're not slightly ashamed of your heathenry five years ago, you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. And and that's the truth. I think that really the the point of the podcast and the point of really it, all of this is to so that we can look and grow and figure out where we were, where we are, and where we're going. And I think that's very important. I think that we have to. We really do have to learn from the past, and we have. And we, Ben is part of this, this kind of new renaissance of scholarly work and printing. And just to, to put a small plug, we ju- the Troth, uh, by the time this comes out, it'll been a couple of months ago, we published a new uh, devotional to Thor that's quite wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did not write it, by the way. That was Jeremy Bear who wrote right. it. Um, and my, hopefully my new book will be coming out by the time this podcast is around. Right. And, and we'd love it if everyone would buy multiple copies. Yes. Uh, make uh, great Yule gifts. Uh, leave them in hotel rooms. Yes. Because there's no reason the Gideon should have all the fun. And, you know, Ben is working on other projects. I mean, we really have this, I mean, opportunities that we have now we didn't have. Mm-hmm. When I, you know, you and I became heathen within a few years of each other, we didn't have any of this in the early 2000s. You had people arguing on mailing lists and uh, a few mm-hmm. okay websites like Frigga's Web. Right. Oh, I remember people arguing on Usenet news groups. Yeah, that's it. So, Yuck. to all of our young or newer heathens, be mm-hmm. grateful for what you have because. Mm-hmm. And it never hurts to go back and re-examine the foundations mm-hmm. of what you're doing and where you are um, and see where you've come from. I mean, heathenry, you know, we're all about looking at weird. And we have this concept of, you know, weird as, you know, it, this, this thing that flows from the past, from these things that have been set in the well of weird. Now, mind you, that image is being questioned by some today, and that maybe is something we could talk about uh, later, that book, The Well and the Tree, which has been very influential yes. in heathenry, if perhaps not so much outside it. But regardless, we have this view of you know, the present as proceeding in this very organic way from the past. And if you want to look at why the present is the way it is, you have to go down and see where we have been and what are the things that are leading to the consequences that we see today for good or for bad or just for whatever strange so that's it that is our brief look at uh wicca we thank you guys for putting up with it um and i also want to say a special thank you to williams library in little rock that's our podcasting studio is and i'm very grateful for them letting us record here and that way we don't have to fight between screaming kids and barking dogs Mm -hmm. so uh, if you want to support us uh, we have a great we have the best patrons in the world so patreon sneak peek special gifts access to our exclusive heathen history facebook group early access to the podcast um, I post videos there occasionally, um, just all kinds of fun stuff. You can go to patreon.com forward slash heathen history, and that's going to tell you how to do that. You could also follow us on Twitter at heathen history or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash heathen history for updates. And as always, our show notes and sources are available on our website, heathenhistory.com. We will try to bury you in sources. It's great. Uh, our theme music is called Happy Viking. It's by Roller Music. 
And our show is edited by Hands on Keyboard, who and accomplishes the not inconsiderable feat of making us sound good. And she's great. And she's on Fiverr if you want to check her out. And for the Heathen Pistry Podcast, I'm Lauren. And I'm Ben. Wassail, Wassail y'all. Wassail y'all.